Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our orders were to flee. The Titan world on him. Flee. Did you say flee? I don't know how you listen to this. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, your intrepid classics scholar. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And today we are reading The Sword of Hades, which Phoebe, in an Odyssey Online article (laughs) in 2017, ranked as her number one favorite Percy Jackson short story. Yeah, and I was right. It still is. It is really good, I will say. Of the, definitely of the three in this book, it's by far my favorite. But before we dive in... Let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Just a reminder that up next, after we finish the series in our next episode, we will have a wrap-up episode of the whole PJO series. And if you'd like to contribute your own thoughts or analyses on the series so far, or you have questions you want us to answer, you can send those to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter or Instagram at PJO pod. You could probably also DM us on TikTok. I don't know how that works, though. You can find, or you can just, if you can find us and DM us, well, it's fine. Yeah, we're getting very close to the end here, so get those in sooner rather than yeah. later. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into the sort of Hades. First of all, this was your first time reading this short story, so do you have any initial thoughts on it? Definitely my favorite of the three. It's, it's really good. I like this one a lot. I, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. And also, it was really funny because I was like, why did Phoebe rank this number one? And then we got to Melinoe, the god of ghosts. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you couldn't tell before that? There are many reasons. Well, I mean, there's Nico, Thalia, and Percy all teaming up. That's like that's a pretty good one. But that was the point where I was like, oh, this is, for those who don't know, one of Phoebe's favorite shows of all time is Ghost Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> and she loves ghosts. Yep. She loves ghosts. In sixth grade, I visited my sister's fourth grade classroom and presented 
did a presentation on why ghosts are real and uh, multiple parents called in to say that their children were having nightmares and complained about me. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't know that. That's so funny. <laughs> but this is a short story that if you haven't read it, you actually probably should read because it's yeah. both it's relevant in House of Hades in the second series and is definitely going to be relevant for the Nico book that comes out in May. But if you don't want to read it or already read it a while back and want to refresh, here is the basic plot. Percy is taking a final exam at school and um, Mrs. O'Leary, the hellhound, shows up and he follows Mrs. O'Leary to um, a random park on the Upper East Side where he runs into Thalia and Nico, and it turns out they've all been summoned to go on a little quest in the underworld by Persephone, because the Sword of Hades that um, he is forging, he's doing so kind of illegally, has gone missing, and the, there's a demigod who's stolen it that is essentially bringing it to Luke and the Titans, because the sword has the power to um, basically control souls if you get touched by it, either to send them to the underworld or bring them back. And so uh, Percy, Thalia, and Nico go on an adventure through the underworld to go find it. And finally, they're able to stop the demigod who stole the sword, who is Ethan Nakamura, our fave. He has also freed Yapetes, a titan who is Atlas's father. And they get into a battle against both of them. And Percy is able to save the day by pushing Yapetus into the river Lethe, Lethe, sorry, the river Lethe, which is the river of forgetting. So Yapetus forgets who he is. They get the sword back, bring it to Hades, discover that this is all Persephone's kind of plan, not the sword getting stolen, but making the sword. Hades didn't know about it until just now. And then Percy makes Hades swear on the river Styx to never use the sword against the gods. And they go back to their lives. Okay, let's start um at the beginning because the first note that i made was on that opening scene where percy is taking his english exam the note i made was that he's taking this exam in the auditorium he says with all of the other freshmen which means rachel is in the room and saw this happen <laughs> on stage and was like all right <laughs> That's pretty funny. I, I feel like <laughs> she would have gone up to help, wouldn't she? Or maybe... It's been a couple months, and at this point, she's like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Can't deal with this right now. So Percy follows Mrs. O'Leary out onto the street into the park where first Thalia appears, who Percy hasn't seen since she left with the hunters, and she's followed by Nico. Who is apparently in a graveyard in New Orleans. Interesting detail. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> This is kind of the first reason why this story is my favorite of the short stories, because mm -hmm. it's so rare that we get to see these three together, even though they're yes. the big three kids. Also, when, like, I think it's when Nico pops out, Thalia and Percy, like, immediately go back to back, like, just fall back in old times. It's interesting because it's like, in an ideal world, this would have been the Titans Curse reunion, but instead there's just a big gap in the middle of that that you can mm. feel from the moment that Nico shows up because Thalia immediately refers to him as Bianca's brother. Yeah. It's even winter again. But that gap in their group is the start of one of the big themes that I saw in this short story, which was death and its consequences on the living because we're immediately reminded of that loss. So 
A pit opens up. They are pulled down into the underworld where Persephone appears. And Persephone explains that Hades has been secretly crafting this new sword to fight with in the Titan War, um, which has the keys of Hades set in the base. And I made a note of this. Did you look this up? Did you look? I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I looked it up because I was like, that sounds like Rick made it up. Like, that sounds fake. <laughs> uh, same. Yeah. These keys are not from Greek mythology. They are not. Where are they from, Phoebe? They're from the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> the book of Revelation. Yeah. Jesus says that he holds the keys to death and Hades, which basically just meaning he holds the keys to life and death and the afterlife. And it's also interesting because Revelation, like, in the Bible writing timeline is, like, I, I think it's the latest book, right? It's one of the latest books yeah. that was added. Yeah. It's a little bit divisive. Like, there are some Christian faiths that don't include it. But that's also really interesting to me because almost all of the mythological references in this short story are also based on a lot of different things that either are the inspiration of or the direct, like, text of um, a lot of, like, Greek mystery cults which are not like they're kind of in the same vein of like not being like the og like the original like super canon stuff of the religion but like things that a lot of people have kind of adapted and used and kind of brought in that date from like a later period and even the way Mm. the story kind of starts is an immediate callback because that that description of the earth swallowing them is like also um, very much how uh, Persephone's abduction and the hymn to Demeter is. So that's the Hades and Persephone mm-hmm. story. Um, and the hymn to Demeter, for those who don't know, is one of the Homeric hymns. It's really old, and it um, there's a bunch of them for different gods. Um, and they're called Homeric hymns because they're written in the Homeric style, like the same style as the Iliad Odyssey. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. But I also, when I looked it up and realized that they were from the Bible... <laughs> I was like, I can definitely connect this back to our conversation in the first book where we talked about like Christ imagery being used and how it shows Western culture warming its way into ancient Greek iconography. (laughs) It brings up an interesting question, sort of like the Santa sleigh thing, where it's like the Santa sleigh is almost an opposite example, where it's the very real taking of a pagan thing and fitting it into Christian lore, which is something that happens a lot. But it's interesting that in this world, there's also there's also these examples of times when it's the reverse. Maybe the keys didn't technically exist for Hades until he ended up in America and then was like, where'd these come from? <laughs> <laughs> no, it would have been earlier than them coming to America. It would have been... Well, Rome, actually. Okay. Persephone tells them all that the sword has been stolen, though, and the thief is out there somewhere in the underworld and so they've shut down the realm so that he can't escape but she also knows that there are escape routes out of the underworld that people have used before so she needs the thief to be found before they can escape percy and thalia are against helping but nico wants to do this to prove himself to his dad and percy doesn't want nico to do this alone and so he offers to thalia i'll hold the plant while you fight the thief which first of all is growth him offering Thalia <laughs> that role and saying he'll just carry the plant. Yeah. Um, I was like, good for you. <laughs> and also I loved that he immediately came up with a plan where they take the lead and Nico isn't involved at all. Like, he's right. like, we will go with Nico and do everything for him. <laughs> Nico is still 12 at this point. So, yeah, they follow the flower. 
all the flower. They're running past, like, screaming and horrifying stuff, which is sort of reminiscent of, like, the Plutarch story I think I mentioned in our first episode. But then they um, finally get to this high hill. There is a man fighting with a boulder who is described as looking like a troll doll. With orange skin, (laughs) a pot belly, scrawny legs, wearing a loincloth, and, like, his hair sticking up. I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that was my first question where I was like, because this is Sisyphus, who's famous in mythology, because uh, basically over the course of his lifetime, he was a king of Corinth who thought he was cleverer than the gods and tricked death and even Persephone in mythology to basically cheat death a few times before he finally came to the underworld and they punished him by giving him this giant boulder that he'd have to push to the top of a hill. And then every time he'd think he'd got it and be able to escape, the boulder would roll back down and he'd have to start over. But yeah, I don't know why the troll doll thing. <laughs> like, I, I I can't think of a reason. It is interesting having him crop up right after Battle of the Labyrinth, though, because Battle of the Labyrinth features Daedalus, who's also a kind of tricky, clever person who's tried to cheat the gods and outsmart the gods. And it's interesting as well, because yeah. I think Nico introduces him as like, oh, like this is the guy that cheated death. And I thought it was going to be Daedalus. That would have been fun, seeing him again. Yeah. <laughs> or like a mention of, they said he was like building overpasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear a mention of construction down there. I know. But starting the quest off with the story's authority on the line between life and death, which is another big theme in the story, crossing the line between life and death and walking it. And mm-hmm. Sisyphus kind of combines that with the idea of death's consequences on the living. He's kind of the embodiment of those ideas that we'll see. So kind of setting that all up for the rest of the story. And I think it works well paired with Persephone since she also kind of walks that line going between Mm -hmm. the underworld and the living world too. Yeah. And that line is also what a lot of the kind of Greek mystery cults were based on as well. So... Mm. The Oracle of Trophonius, for example, is based on a hero cult where he went to the under, he was basically half dead, half alive, went to the underworld. And you're basically through um, communing with the spirit of this dead hero able to learn about um, the future. There's also a cult called the Eleusinian Mysteries that is sort of to Persephone and Demeter that I'm actually going to talk about a lot more when we get to the next series. And if you're wondering who's related to that, oh boy, do I have some interesting things to talk about there. And all of them, a huge piece of it is crossing into the underworld. We don't really mm. get Dionysus, unfortunately. We get Revelations, though, which is the Christian equivalent. It's, you know, the rebirth, the rapture. Yeah. There's also a kind of cult that we call Orphism, which is basically centered around the alleged works of Orpheus, who is a mythological poet and singer who actually presents a very different origin story of like the Greek gods and titans and the myths, but that this story in particular is actually really based on. There's a bunch of um, Orphic hymns. Now, for those who are curious, the Orphic hymns actually all date to like considerably later than a lot of the other Greek myths we have attested in Greek. And they seem to have a lot of influence from, like, the East, um, which, and considering they got really popular around the time of Hellenistic period, which is when, like, Alexander the Great was going out and conquering the Persian Empire and even got as far as India, 
that makes sense. So there's like a long-standing history and a lot of different examples and attestations all across Greece of being able to either cross halfway into the underworld and commune with the dead or, you know, encounter gods who have all been reborn. That's just like a huge piece, I think, of Greek religion that we don't really like talk about a lot, I think. Hmm. Unrelated to this, um, also from Sisyphus, we learn that the thief is likely Ethan Nakamura. Yes. Who, in this short story, is paralleling Luke's quest from the lightning thief because he's stealing a symbol of power from a god as Kronos' champion because he can't do it himself. And Ethan is driven by a want for revenge and justice. And so he's taking Luke's place now that Luke and Kronos are the same being, um, which I think is fun. <laughs> I love Ethan. I love Ethan. As a symbolic device. <laughs> I know. That's the thing is he he is a symbolic. I know. <laughs> it is really interesting, though, because I, they mentioned at the end of the Battle of the Labyrinth that Nemesis is one of the gods that's defected. So what is really interesting is the fact that Ethan seems to actually be following the whims of his godly parent instead of defying them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we get more of that in the next book. I just remember that I came out of the series feeling like Ethan was one of my favorite characters and we're like getting there, but I don't remember exactly what he did to make him my favorite. It's so all I'm in excited. the next book. <laughs> <laughs> so Sisyphus says that the thief was going to see Melanoe, goddess of ghosts, because she has her own path up to the surface where mm. she haunts the living at night. But on the way, they're attacked by the Keres which are battlefield spirits who feed on violent death. And but while they fight them off, one of them gets Percy in the shoulder, which I feel is where the story takes a massive turn mm -hmm. because the Keres in this story are also spirits of pestilence. So it's immediately infected to the point that for the rest of the story, Percy is barely well enough to narrate it, which yeah. you should know by now. <laughs> is one of my favorite things that can happen in this series. <laughs> but the thing I like about it most is that we lose time every time he passes out. And so by the time Percy can narrate clearly again, the flowers lost petals and he's propped up against a rock and doesn't know how he ended up there. And so all of a sudden he can't tell this story fully because he doesn't know half of what's happening around him. And you might even say he's on death's door. Yep, at, from this point on, Percy is walking the line between life and death because he's in and out of consciousness while Nico and Thalia end up leading the way through the quest. Which is another thing that I really love about this short story is these two sort of emotionally distant characters who are some of the least likely to show Percy any sort of physical affection, mm. <laughs> being forced to take care of him and like bandage his wounds and try to keep him safe. There's also an interesting parallel here in the, like, Orphic mythology where um, both Zagreus or the, like, earlier incarnation of Dionysus and actually Melinoe are both supposed to be children of Persephone, where basically they're the child of Zeus and Persephone, but also, like, Zeus disguised as Hades. So there's a lot of, like, Hades and Zeus kind of both. It's just really messed up. Um spoilers for the Hades game his mom's identity is a mystery through the whole game oh. <laughs> sorry you should play it <laughs> <laughs> so that myth came after the the one we know or 
So who who was reading this, these myths and was like, I can make this worse? <laughs> There's a few different like re- theories of like where they kind of come from, and I think all of them are correct in certain depending on like which cult you're talking about. Like for example, there's a lot that are like either clearly very inspired by or literally the cult of like Isis and Osiris in Egypt, which sprang up like after contact. Imported religion is a thing that we see all the time in the ancient world. And I think part of it might be that of people like importing a lot of really interesting ideas from other religions they're coming into contact with. They're trying to find a way to reconcile that with the one they grew up with that culturally exists um, in their society. So like this cycle of death and rebirth that you see a lot more in East in the Eastern like religions is really prominent in the Orphic tradition so it's like how do we reconcile Mm -hmm. that but like there is sort of a thought that that is kind of where they a lot of them originate either from imported gods from other cultures and or indigenous gods and practices that have been preserved so once Percy is conscious enough to keep going they keep making their way toward Melanoe's cave but to get there it turns out you have to cross the river Lethe, which will wipe your memory if a single drop of water gets on you. And it's where souls cleanse themselves before they're reborn. So, again, life and death. Then we get a fun Percy scene. Yeah, Percy decides the only way across the river is that he lift the water over their heads in an arch that they can walk under, which, like, we've talked about Percy's new confidence in his powers, but this is, like... A stupid risky move even when Percy is healthy but doing it now when you can barely stand is like another level of unearned confidence which backfires on him yeah it's really interesting though for a few different reasons number one like I think even in the text he is thinking to himself like this is not anywhere near my father's domain this should not work but then he tries it and the water fights him but it does This is a realization that Percy can control basically any kind of water. It's just there's no limit on anything that he can do ever. It's (laughs) While Nico and Thalia do make it to the other side of the river, Percy doesn't um, because he stumbles and uh, Thalia's voice breaks his concentration. It's not actually him stumbling that betrays him it's thalia screaming when he stumbles that makes him lose his grip on the river and it crashes down on him which thalia i thalia in this scene when they get to the river percy's like oh let me handle this you guys need me for this and thalia's like why would we need you (laughs) like in this state why would we need you and then he lifts the river thalia crosses it and then yells to him that he should go but like he stumbles even trying to get into the riverbed and says that he can't make it and then Thalia is the one who tells him no keep going we need you and I was like need him for what first of all (laughs) like it's like they they don't actually need him at this point in their minds probably because he's so weak and they can see that he's probably not gonna make it across the river and I was like why are you encouraging him to go and then she's the reason that it it falls on him like he he might have made it (laughs) but because she screams which is not her fault he was concentrating. Why didn't they carry him? Yeah, someone could have c- carried him. That's a good point. Thalia should have just carried him. I didn't think this through. Yeah, that is interesting that it's Thalia screaming. It was an interesting moment for me for Thalia because she sees an immediate consequence to her pushing Percy too far. 
But yeah, he should have just like walked with them. They should have made sure he made it across. I don't know why they left him behind. I think he had a mind <laughs> to sacrifice himself, though. Like, I think he was like, no, you two go. I, I'm not strong enough to go. Yeah, no, I know why Percy doesn't go. I don't know why anyone else doesn't encourage him to come with them, especially if they're then going to encourage him to cross the river afterward. Yeah. I, I wanted to know what was going through Thalia's mind, especially because Percy... Percy survives this, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's able to keep himself dry in the water and, like, maneuver the water around him so that he makes it to the other side. And then he passes out again, and we lose time again. And by the time he wakes up, like, the flower only has two petals on it, and his shoulder is rebandaged, so he's been out for a while. Mm. And I was like, I want to know what Thalia's reaction was to that. This was a very quick but very intense little moment for Thalia that we didn't get to see because Percy was not there to tell us about it. Yeah, but then we get to another kind of escape from the underworld, which is the Cave of Melanoe. Right. Who emerges from the mist in the form of the spirit of Thalia's mom, who we know died in a car crash while driving drunk in the years Mm -hmm. when Thalia was dead. And Thalia is overwhelmed by seeing her again. Yeah, I thought this was interesting that the ghost scolds Thalia for running away when she needed her, which is mm. kind of just our confirmation of our idea of Thalia having to be a caretaker for her mom, or at least mm. like seeing herself that way. Because like that, this was a question that I had in this scene, which we don't need to answer right now, <laughs> which was when Melanoe takes these forms, is she like channeling actual ghosts that are out there in the world? Like these are feelings that these ghosts actually feel and are they actual ghosts with unfinished business somewhere or is she just reading their mind that is an interesting question because it feels like if she was just reading their mind she would be more of like a goddess of regret or grief or something but she's like goddess of ghosts so i wondered if like thalia's mom is actually out there or if nico's mom is still out there i think they have to be because that's her domain it's not just the dead it's specifically you know spirits that have not been laid to rest yeah it makes it even worse if we think of these as actual thoughts that the ghosts of their parents are are thinking well i think it makes sense because i mean thalia's mom like did she have anyone that would have performed funeral rites on her and i don't know about nico's mom but yeah right when nico tries to step in and stop it the ghost transforms into nico's mom who tells him that she's haunting the world looking for him and bianca both Thalia and Nico are under her spell in this scene, despite Nico claiming to be the Ghost King. <laughs> I do think it is also really interesting, the like dichotomy of the two moms, because on the one hand, you have Thalia's mom, who's calling her like in one breath ungrateful, and then on the other, like, you know, how dare you run away from me? I needed you. Mm-hmm. And then you get Nico's mom, who is really, it's, it's interesting because it brings to mind Orpheus, because Orpheus in his original myth after he failed to bring Eurydice back from the underworld just kind of wanders around until he basically turns into a restless spirit and he essentially has that fate of like dying like trying to find his loved one but never being able to so both Nico and Thalia are kind of in the thrall of Melanoe where they're both seeing their moms that are restless spirits and then Percy sees a third form appear who's um, half like a desiccated corpse and half a desanguinated corpse, I guess. So one side without blood, like totally white, the other like a mummy. And Mm -hmm. 
something else that's also really interesting about Melinoe is that she is apparently depicted as wearing saffron robes, which something that gets conflated a lot in Greek, ancient Greek um, and actually ancient Roman tradition is that there is a lot of similarity between the rights of marriage and the rights of death. And there's a few like different stories and examples that kind of showcase that one of them being in the tale of cupid and psyche like the original story psyche like gets to him in the first place by like basically dressing up in all of her marriage clothes and then she kind of like jumps off a cliff and then gets taken by the east wind or the west wind i think it's zephyr to wherever cupid is and likewise the hades and persephone story is a big one too because you know they end up married but in order to be married she goes to the underworld and there's a lot of really interesting implications there. And one of the things is like these saffron robes um, are kind of like the marriage robes. And that's something you also see Persephone being depicted as. And I thought that was really interesting to think about here because in like the ancient world, a young girl getting married was kind of considered her rite of passage into adulthood. Likewise, around 16, in at least ancient Roman society, that was when the young men would be considered, like, fully adults. And it's really interesting to me that in this story here, like, Percy in particular, but also Thalia, they're all kind of on the cusp of this 16, (laughs) this magic 16, this adulthood, when they get pulled into the underworld, right before I think they kind of have to come to terms with everything. I know there's something there I think that's always there about the idea of like the death of innocence too and like this idea that like who you are as a child kind of has to go away for you to become an adult. I think the response that my brain is trying to put together (laughs) is Melanoe as a symbol of this and her not really being able to connect with Percy yet. Mm. It's like Percy hasn't reached that point yet. He doesn't have his ghosts yet. He He's still, you know, in a way that both Thalia and Nico have, like, crossed the threshold, I guess, and, yeah. like, had that death of innocence. Percy hasn't gotten there yet. Yeah. But we get a very clear warning from her that he's about to cross it. I had a couple thoughts on this, because she specifically yeah. says, why can I not see yours about his ghosts? And I thought there were a couple of reasons which are partially what he says, which is that he thinks he's made his peace mm-hmm. with their deaths. But I also think that she can't see his ghost because most of them are still living. Mm-hmm. And that he's actually surrounded by a couple of them in this story. Like some of the ones that he's made peace with were Thalia, who we talked about at the beginning of the series was a ghost haunting his dreams mm-hmm. um, for the first two books. And there's Nico, who was haunting him in the last book through Bianca, through those visions. And then beyond them, you could count Ethan as someone he couldn't save, or maybe Luke, although I don't think that Percy would count him, <laughs> but who died a metaphorical death in the last book, but is still technically living. So all of the people who Percy is haunted by are people who are still alive. And so I think that's most of why melanoi can't see them yeah i agree with you i actually also want to dig into thalia because then melanoi says something really interesting to her which is your mother was right you're an angry girl Mm -hmm. good at running away but not much else i wrote that one too (laughs) but i wrote it mainly because it's so similar to what aries told percy in the first book 
where he tells him that the only thing he's good at is running away. Yeah. And also the angry girl line. I was like, yeah, yeah. they're both angry girls. That's so true. <laughs> I want to dig into Thalia more here, I think, because I feel like there, there's some I feel like it's there. I just can't put it together. Well, with the running away line, my first thought is joining the hunters is kind of her running away. And so it might be a, a jab at that, at the fact that she saw the prophecy coming up on her and said, uh, I don't want that, and joined the hunters. So in a way, was her running away from her fate? I also want to bring bring forward an, a, another thing, which is that when they're talking to Sisyphus, Thalia is able to kind of distract him slash enable him to have a conversation with them because she takes on his task of pushing the rock up the hill. And they run out of time when the rock inevitably rolls back down. And then Thalia comes back down and says to Percy, the scary thing is, I thought I had it. Like, she is kind of taken in by the false victory of it. And she all, she even goes on to say that she was like, and I was sure, like, if I just tried it again, it would work that time. So I'm thinking back, like, Sisyphus's punishment, he basically continuously thinks he can escape death. He can kind of escape his ultimate fate by mm-hmm. essentially running away. And the rock punishment is there to continuously give him basically that false hope right before the crash. And I think something that is really interesting about Thalia is in a way now she has cheated her fate twice because the first time yep. she was turned into a tree, the second time she didn't cheat death necessarily, but she did cheat her fate by joining the hunters, by running away. And feeling like you can outsmart the gods, feeling like you're clever, like that is a kind of hubris. And I think Percy does on occasion feel like he could outsmart the gods. I'd agree with that, considering his approach to fighting most immortals is to try and outsmart them. But I don't know if I get that from Thalia. Yeah. It's not like a am more clever than the gods situation. It's just that she is on the run from death and from her fate. And so it's not like a a prideful, like, I've cheated death from her. It's more like she's always looking behind her. Like, there's even the moment where Percy is like, oh, how is immortality treating you? And her immediate reaction is like, it's not immortality. I can still die at any moment. And he's like, got it. Okay, I I know. but (laughs) Yeah. But she is reaching for that moment when she, like, finally escapes, I I guess. So after getting past Melanoe... They see Ethan and the Titan Yapetus, who is not at full strength yet, about to escape. But Yapetus sees them all on the other side, uh, near the River Lethe, and basically challenges Percy to a fight by charging him. Which was interesting, because I thought that was against the rules. And the whole time, Ethan is like, no, we gotta get it. We just gotta run away. This was this is not part of the plan. Let's just get out of here. And he's kind of stopped by the Titan, who's insisting on picking a fight with Percy. So Percy fights god number four <laughs> with a sword. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this time, it's mostly on Yepetus. Like, Percy is not trying to be a part of this fight. No. <laughs> but this guy is, like, dead set on killing Percy first. Partially because Percy does stab him at one point, but also yeah. I think probably because Percy is visibly the weakest person here. Oh, yeah. He has been on Death's Door the whole time, lest we forget. Yeah. <laughs> and there was that one moment where Percy, he got knocked over by the riverside, and Yaptus is going after him, and Percy's like, Percy can't even move. 
because he's so hurt at this point. And as Yeftis is on his way there, he sees, like, Thalia tries to fight him off and, like, Nico tries to stop him. But, like, he's just an un- unstoppable force. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to kill this guy. <laughs> I wonder if he heard from Kronos that he's got a, that Percy Jackson's a problem. Uh, maybe. But as Yeftis is on his way toward Percy, Percy comes up with an idea. So he coaxes him closer by taunting him. And when Yeptus brings his spear down, Percy grabs him by the shirt collar and drags them both into the river Lethe. And he's able to keep himself dry like he did last time, but Yeptus is wiped out by the river. And mm-hmm. when he emerges, he's forgotten himself completely. And now his name is Bob. Yeah, and Percy, basically as soon as he surfaces, renames him Bob and tells him he's his friend to try and keep him on his side. And then they get the sword away from Ethan and he runs. And Thalia is about to shoot him with an arrow. And Percy says to Thalia, basically, he basically commands her not to shoot. Yeah, he spares him again. He keeps doing that. He keeps yeah. doing that. And it's not, considering what happens in the next book, it is not a smart move. But, it's <laughs> <laughs> but it does make me think about what you were saying, where all of his ghosts are still alive. I wonder if part of it is that he, he keeps sparing his ghosts. I think the only character that he doesn't give second chances to, the only mortal character he doesn't like give a second chance to is Luke. That's true. When it comes to like life and death, the only person who he is dead set on killing is Luke. Like It's not like he's going to forgive you for anything, but maybe he won't kill you. <laughs> yeah. But I think like Ethan is the epitome of like all of the times Percy's let someone go. And it's come back to bite him. Like, that mm-hmm. is Ethan as a character. Yeah. And Ethan, I think, is his constant, like, this time he'll come back. This time he'll join the good side. This time I'm sure it'll work. Yeah. So Ethan is sort of another character who walks the line between life and death. And Percy is the one who is always sort of there for it yeah. and who makes that decision. Like, that's how we met him and that's what we see here. And in the next book, that relationship gets a little twisted, a little messy. (laughs) So I guess that's how that theme can continue here. And also, Yepetus as someone who did just rise out of Tartarus. I don't think we mentioned that that's how he's there. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I can't complete this thought on Ethan until we finish the next book. That's the problem. Yeah, the next book is is a a good even book. But I mean, Percy does, if we want to like finish the life and death through line, Percy delivers Yepetus a a rebirth by dragging him into the river. He baptizes him, yes. All right, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I think Percy, when he was going through the river, should have just split it like Moses style just to like really bring home all of the the biblical imagery <laughs> it is interesting that okay. both of the times we've gotten the Christian iconography that's really distinct has been in the underworld with Hades hmm now I'm thinking about there's that one this is the thing is that Rick doesn't want to confirm or deny religions in his work but then in the first book, you get that one moment with the, like, corrupt priest who's going through the underworld. And Percy's oh, yeah. like, well, what's that guy see walking through here? And they're like, ah, oh, the mist will make you see anything. And you're like, okay, so this is the real underworld? <laughs> like, this is the real afterlife is what you're saying here? Yeah. It's interesting because it's a question, you know, I've been working on a book that involves the Greek underworld also. And, like, one of the biggest questions that I've been circling around is it's like, why is this the one? 
it, it only feels right if you're raised in a very like white Eurocentric environment where like the original mythology is like the Greek and Roman stuff and like the new modern like religion and mythology is Christianity. Okay, let's get out of this scene. Let's get to the yeah. ending. So now that Ethan's gone and they have the sword, they bring it back to Hades, who we find out didn't order the sword to be made. And it was mm. Persephone who sort of orchestrated this whole thing. But now that he has it, he's like, okay. Yeah, now that he has it, he's like, yeah, I swear I won't use it against the gods. Whatever. But he now has a tool that he can use in the war against Titans. And then once Hades disappears and we get to talk to Persephone at the end, there's this great moment from Percy, mm. who's angry at being used by Persephone, and he tells her, Get lost before I carry you down to the Lethe and drown you in it. Bob will help me, won't you, Bob? And I was like, it's it's the same thing that we saw with Phobos and Deimos in the last story, where he's just like threatening immortals like it's nothing. But this time, it's the way that he immediately uses Bob to do it. Yeah. And especially because what he's threatening to do is exactly what he did to Bob. And I just, it reminded me of a later scene in House of Hades, which is the same scene that yeah. I referenced last time. But <laughs> it's just the lack of, we'll get into this. We'll get into this in the next series and in the Nico book. <laughs> I, I think this is where we're really seeing him actually come into agency for the first time. Because he's he's able to work within and find creative ways to get what he wants and to do what he needs to do within the rules of this world in which he is relatively powerless. Because of the way he's been able to manipulate both monsters and gods, he's starting to really learn his own power, not just in terms of like the water power, but also in terms of like manipulation, which I think mm -hmm. is the mark of a lot of the heroes and a lot of the specifically more trickster heroes in mythology, because they're the ones who are able to figure it out a lot of the time yeah percy that's a, a trait that he's had since the very beginning but i think we see him use it a lot more now now that he can confidently use that skill against the gods yeah and i do think that confidence began at the end of titan's curse like i think when he reclaims the prophecy and like claims the narrative back i think that's when it really kind of starts because you see it like in the fight with Antaeus, you see it a lot in Battle of the Labyrinth where he's pretty confident that he's going to be able to get through everything and like volunteers himself instead of being pushed into a lot of the impossible tasks. No, I see it as something that's built throughout Battle of the Labyrinth, but it does make sense for it to have started once he claimed his spot in the story. I do really like this depiction of Persephone. Like the way she appears where she's like faded and not really there and like the way she seems kind of like bitter and like resentful and like I think now the Hades and Persephone story has been reclaimed a lot which I do enjoy and I think Persephone's kind of been given a lot more agency in the way she's depicted now but in the original story she doesn't really have that and I think this depiction of her kind of speaks to both versions in an interesting way where it speaks to the origin, but it also does show that she has more going on. She has an, a degree of agency. Like she has an agenda. She serves her husband, but also doesn't seem like does seem to have like an opinion of her own about like what happened to her. Yeah. It is interesting that in a way they did their own initiation rights right now. 
because they did have to kind of cross into the underworld and do a task for Persephone, which if you're in a lot of these cults, it's kind of what you were supposed to be doing, theoretically, quote unquote. Hmm. They don't even know it, but they're part of it. (laughs) And there's also a lot of themes of like losing yourself through like drugs and alcohol mostly. But here there's like the Latha that's flowing through. That's kind of like a threat of that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You could argue that Percy is losing himself throughout the whole story. That's true. Because he's in and out of it. So maybe the real plot of this was Persephone trying to bring in new members. (laughs) (laughs) Recruit for her cult. (laughs) None of them know it yet, but they're a part of it. (laughs) Actually, okay, here's an interesting thought. Coming back to what I was saying about how a lot of these mystery cults were imports or based on imports of interesting of religions and ideas and basically reconciling the imports with their culture. It's interesting because that is essentially what Rick is doing in a way here with the book series because he is importing a religion that does not exist and is not part of, you know, our culture and creating the circumstances in our culture that would allow space for it, that would allow it to be the real thing that's been going on this whole time. Mm-hmm. And like kind of reframing and recreating a narrative that allows for him to bring in what he wants religious in terms of religion into like our society. When like a lot of the time adapting religious practices is kind of the backbone of mystery cults. It's basically being able to take things that are on the margins or reincorporate new ideas. And the Orphic hymns are a really interesting example of that because they really do have to reframe so much a lot of Greek mythology from the beginning in order to make it all work in a way where it is both familiar but also is based on completely different values and completely different ideas. Hmm. So we as the audience are part of... (laughs) A mystery cult. Exactly. (laughs) What are the rituals here? Maybe we'll never find out. It's the listening mysteries. (laughs) First rule of Percy Jackson is don't talk about Percy Jackson. We messed it up real bad. (laughs) (laughs) So this story doesn't have a bead. So if you uh, were to design the bead at the end of it, what would you put on it? I'd put the river Lethe on it. The Black River. Mm. I'm double checking something. Okay. The joke is not good. (laughs) I was really hoping that it was a red carnation so that I could make the joke that it's like oh it's like a hand holding like a red carnation and then like kind of like a grayish black background and like maybe we add like a fun little name to it behind it that like means Hades but like it's like kind of cool and fresh like yeah it's um, like um because it's not just like Hades it's like the realm of Hades right maybe Hades 10 Hades 10 oh yeah that's a uh yeah that's a good idea I like that one yeah I love that but it's not it's yellow It's. (laughs) What do carnations symbolize? Okay, yellow carnations. Oh, a yellow carnation bloom expresses the idea of rejection and disappointment with someone. According to HGTV, let's find a different source. (laughs) Let me find a different source. (laughs) No, there's a different one that says yellow carnations mean disappointment and rejection. Oh, what could that mean? (laughs) Why yellow, Rick? Why'd you pick that one? Maybe Persephone is just passive-aggressively only growing yellow carnations in her garden. (laughs) That's all she's got in there. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, Hades doesn't know, 
like what it means. So he's just like, oh, okay. She brings him flowers all the time. And he's like, that's so nice of my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we are going to be finishing the original series and reading The Last Olympian. I'm so excited. I have so much to say about that book. (laughs) The more I've read this book series, the more I've realized how little I remember what actually happens in that book. Like, I remember, like, three distinct events, all of which I'm very excited about. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so if you have any questions or thoughts you want us to answer also in our final wrap-up. You can uh, send those to monsterdonutpodcast.gmail.com or find us on social media at pjopod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And also, if you want to see the art that I created during this episode, you can't find the dots <laughs> on YouTube. It's not there yet. <laughs> see you next time for... Series finale. Before the reunion special. The Real Housewives of... Like, you're joking, but I swear to God Rick has written that in somewhere. Real Housewives. Something like that. Real Housewives of Olympus. All right. I'm cutting us off. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.